With 80 plus episodes in the vault and more than $3 million in total compensation increases received by The Secrets Village, KP and PR are still dropping jewels. Secrets continues to validate that you are not crazy with the challenges faced in trying to reach and exceed your career aspirations. A listener describes Secrets as helping to pinpoint areas I need to develop and conversations I never knew I needed to hear. And season five will definitely not disappoint as they continue to deliver secrets on how to advocate for yourself, how to become a better ally, and how to increase your market value by building generational wealth. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, have paid their dues to reach the top of corporate America, and they want to share their stories with you to transform your journey. And this groundbreaking podcast challenges you, as well as corporate America, to be better and do better. KP and PR will bring you more tips and tricks on how to advance your career. So fill up those cups and welcome to season five. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Secrets. Keith, you're over there smiling, looking chipper today, brother. What's going on, man? What's on your mind? Hey, I'm doing all right, PR. Good to see you again. And I just got back from San Antonio from this conference, and there's this keynote speaker. Her name was Amanda Nguyen, and she's like a Vietnamese social activist, civil rights activist, and she helped champion pushing through like the Sexual Assault Survivors Rights Act that actually passed unanimously to Congress. And actually, she got it through the United Nations as well. And what struck me about her story was we talk a lot about stereotypes and and microaggressions that our AAPI colleagues face. And just the the issues that she faced, the resilience, the courage, all of those kind of non-stereotypical things where she used her voice and actually pushing through legislation on on a national and a a global level kind of resonated with me. And so for me, it just felt like the perfect time. Timing. Timing is serendipitous at the end of the day, uh, because we were talking about having Victor on the show. Uh, So my former boss, Victor Cho, is going to be with us today on the show. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, no, so look, KP, I wish I could have been there to hear Amanda as well, because, you know, it does something to us when we when we hear about people putting in work and really being part of that system of change and really trying to influence that. So, you know, you and I are going to definitely spend some time talking about her story in detail a little bit later, you know, today. But I'm excited to have Victor on the show today because not only because I've heard you tell so many amazing stories, you know, about him and that and, and your time working together. But actually, he's been on our guest list for quite some time. Right. And again, we have just a testament to the people that we know, but the amazing people who want to be on the show. And so I'm just super excited that he's on here. So KP, my brother, why don't you just do the honors, you know, of introducing Victor to our listeners today? My pleasure. And I'm not going to put the normal shine on it today. You I'm ain't going to put the stank on it, Keith. I'm not going to do no it today. It. You know, I'm, I'm going to let Victor do that a little <laughs> bit for himself. Let him brag on himself a little bit. But I will say that Victor is basically straight out of central casting when you look at tech executives, you know, and at least in my mind. I mean, he's worked for companies like Microsoft and iVillage and Intuit and Kodak and Evite. And I actually met Victor when I became COO and he became CEO of Kodak e-commerce business. And so that's when we first had a chance to to interact. And then after leaving Kodak, and he went on to become CEO at Evite. It was there for almost eight years, I believe. And we'll talk about that ride and journey along the way. He also serves on several boards, including Evite, Moto, Clockout. He's also been a big part of the Internet Marketing Association for many, many years. And he's also an entrepreneur and has started and scaled several tech ventures over his time. 
And I also know that Victor's passionate about making positive social change. And we'll talk about that again as well today. And he's mentoring kind of the next generation of Asian leaders. So Victor, welcome to Secrets. It's so happy to finally have you on. Keith, such a pleasure. It's awesome to be here. Yeah. And Ricky, nice to see you again. Nice to see you too, man. So like, welcome to the show, Victor, man. This is going to be extremely, extremely interesting conversation today. So Keith, kick us off and talk about what will be in this episode today. Yeah. So today we'll talk with Victor, like we do with all of our guests, about his story and, and personal journey and career journey, some of the some of the fun that he's had along the way on that. Um, we'll provide some receipts on lack of AAPI representation within corporate America. And we'll close out today with a double dose of secrets from Victor on how Asian employees can increase their visibility and gain sponsorship and how companies can actually build and expand their efforts to develop and recruit underrepresented employees for executive leadership roles. Secrets Village, I think you all are used to us being able to bring amazing guests on. So, Victor, what we generally try to do is to give our listeners a level of understanding in terms of who they're speaking to. So, Victor, again, how we start these interviews off is just giving some insight as to who they're talking to. So can you please just take a moment to bring our listeners up to speed on who you are and what your upbringing, educational background and your career journey? Just take us through it. We are all ears and ready to hear this story. Yeah, absolutely, Ricky. Again, such a pleasure to be here. Actually, like many of my peers, I find myself often running into folks who come from very humble upbringings in tech that have kind of made their career over the last you know two or three decades. And I will say I came from, now, not the humblest of humble beginnings, but you know, I definitely lived in an impoverished state as a young kid. So I'm a Korean American, born here in the States, right outside of Cleveland. But my parents separated when I was really young. So we ended up living with myself, my mother, and my sister effectively alone. And my mother couldn't really speak English. So you can imagine trying to make your way in the world as you know, she's a super educated woman. She went to you know, the, the, the Harvard equivalent in Korea, but here she couldn't speak English. So she she was a maid. She was a nurse's assistant. She did you know, any of the jobs just to help us survive. And we were on financial assistance. We were on food stamps. You know, there was a time we actually didn't have a place to live, so we had to you know, live with neighbors. So that you know, that was that was the baseline. I didn't have all of the trappings and benefits of even a middle-income childhood, but was lucky enough to be surrounded by a family, and in particular, my mom, who stressed education above all else. So I got. Yeah. A reasonable education, even though I went to a horrible uh, public school. I guess I won't name it because I don't want to bash, uh, <laughs> bash our public universities. But something like 98% of my public school went on to work. Not even two-year degree. They went straight to work. But long story short, I did uh, end up going to University of Pennsylvania. So I was lucky enough to get into a great university. I got a great background in business. So I graduated from the, what's called the Wharton School of Business, which is a four-year degree out of the University of Pennsylvania, probably one of the top business degrees maybe the top undergraduate business degree. And that led me into a long long career in tech, as Keith mentioned. Started at Microsoft in the 90s. So I was there when Microsoft went through this crazy run-up from, I forget how many employees it had, but yeah, probably 20 or 30x in size over the time that I was there. And that, I was, I was fortunate enough, again, to have that experience, with the, which then let me branch off into a bunch of other endeavors. So at that point, I went off. Uh, I did a number of the stints that Keith mentioned uh, all in tech, all in the internet space. I eventually making my way to CEO. Uh, my first CEO role was working with Keith. Uh, and I think, let's see, I started that in 2008, I want to say. <laughs> 2008. So I was 37 years old at that time. So that was my first CEO role. And then uh, I just did another spin at Evite. 
Man, I mean, look, so so first off, 2008 seemed like it was covered wagons, you know, back then. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) in terms of technology, you know, it really was. But I mean, I think what I hear, you know, in your story really just resonates with me is because if we really just take a step back based off of the tools or the resources that you had based off of the environment, everything that you do at this point is an overachievement, right? Because you weren't really set up you know, for success yeah. based off of the environment. But that foundation, that DNA that you had really, from what I hear, what I know about you is part of what drives you and what drove you to be as successful as you've been so far. Yeah, I'd say that's right. I have a very strong work ethic. And I think a lot of that comes from, I understand what it's like when you don't have anything and what a gift it is. It is a gift to be employed. It is a gift to have a job. It is not a right. It's it's not a privilege. And I run into so many folks that don't come from those backgrounds and they have this attitude. Well, I was like, I'm, I'm God's gift to talent and I'm so smart and I came from this great background. You should be happy to have me. And I'm like, actually, no. <laughs> it's like, this, <laughs> you should be happy to have a job because guess what? There's a whole world out there where that is a luxury to be employed. And that, that's always permeated my thinking. And I've always then delivered at my utmost for whatever business I'm in because I really did have that appreciation. That's awesome. And it is a privilege to be employed because it's it's hard for a lot of us to get jobs as the unemployment rates show for, yes. for underrepresented employees in particular. And I'm curious just to understand what your journey was like kind of as an Asian man trying to climb the corporate ladder, because we've heard from our API colleagues about, you know, these stereotypes that are in the system around like being quiet and therefore lacking leadership capabilities or, you know, being pigeonholed into kind of entry level roles or you know, the, the pressure of being the model minority in, yeah. in the workplace. And so I'm just curious, you know, did you feel like you had to be twice as good or um, and how that impacted your ability to take risk and, and some of those things along your career journey? So there's as a starting point, because I was born here in the States, I have this weird mental deficiency, for lack of a better term, which is I'm not aware of my Asian-ness. I actually grew up surrounded by, I grew up in a small farm town. We were the only Asian family in the whole town. Uh, and they thought we were Japanese, even though we were Korean. But it's all the same. It was all the same to them. They, they the were like, oh, be, be afraid of the Cho's because the Cho's know karate. I'm like, okay, well, that's like a different, completely different race, but okay. Because I grew up here, it's, it's actually a weird story. I think the first time I was truly aware of my Asianness, if that's even a word, was when I went to Korea for the first time, like in my 20s and was surrounded by folks. And I had this feeling of, oh, wow, I have this weird sense I had never felt before of, I'm, I'm surrounded by a bunch of people that are kind of like me. That, that, that was literally the first time I was aware of my ethnicity. I mean, of course I was aware of it because people said, oh, look, you're not, you know, you know, they'd make those silly name calling in, in elementary school. But now to going back to your question, now there absolutely is a, a an Asian cultural dimension, which can be a dampener to career success in terms of you don't, you know, you're a little bit more humble. You don't go out and broadcast your wins, right? You respect your elders. Like some of these things are in many ways a detriment and a drag in the corporate world. Not that you have to completely move out of them, right? But they create a, you know, for lack of a better term, a stereotypical persona, I would say, of yeah, the, kind of the model Asian who's just super smart and they go in and they do their work and they assume the system's going to recognize it all and they will be rewarded. And that, of course, is not the world, at least not the American world of capitalism. So I, I don't know if it's because my parents split. The The good news is I didn't have that DNA. Like I remember at Microsoft, um, you know, the first meeting I had with Steve Ballmer and Bill Gates were in a room. And I still remember this very vividly because we were talking about a customer segmentation taxonomy that Microsoft had. And uh, Steve Ballmer said something. And you know, he's, he, he was the, the president of the business at this point in time. And like he got a little piece of it a tiny bit wrong. 
like I had like worked on this for months and months. I was like, and I thought I was like, wow, should I say something to Steve Palmer? Let him know that that's the wrong customer taxonomy. And for a microsecond, it took me to say, of course I should, because we can't have a discussion right at this table if we're actually using the wrong data. So I was like, oh, hey, Steve, no, actually the, the segmentation is ABC. And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 I knew that, right? I think that's more of a rare personality trait. I think a ton of people in that environment would have just been, ooh, like, I'm not going to say anything. But, you know, I didn't have that wiring. I do think part of it might be because I grew up in a split household and I, you know, I had to become super independent, super fast. I laugh when you say that because, again, th- there's some qualities that separate some good leaders from some of the passive leaders and whatnot. And speaking up, like, that's like, that's something that we are like, I, doesn't really care too much like what ethnic group that you come from, but as an underrepresented employee, like you do kind of have that sense of, I don't want to correct the boss. I don't, (laughs) you know, do this, that, the other, but again, leaders are wired differently, you know? So for you to be able to do that. And I think that that's like a, something that really sticks, you know, well with me, knowing that I know you and, and I know how we talk. I just couldn't see you actually being in a room, you know, and not saying, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, in that situation. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. I've never been starstruck, for lack of, the, of a better term, by authority or level. So even, even that day, I was a 20-year-old kid in a room with Bill Gates and ever since I was young, I realized these, these are all just people. Like some people have more experience than other people. We're all flesh and bone. We're all imperfect, right? Some have more knowledge than others, but like there's there's nothing inherently scary to me about yeah, meeting the president. I, I don't care. It's like we're all people. We all bleed out in the end if we get <laughs> if we're in that state. So um, I've never had that fear. I don't know how you teach that. I think a lot of that does come from experience, right? As you move up the ranks, you do realize you, you can have a voice, and the ramifications of not speaking are actually worse. Right than usually speaking. Like if you if you're if you've got the business interest in mind, and you are a vocal voice, that's usually a good thing for you. Yeah, and to that point, I know you know as I'm kind of listening to this to Keith's question uh, for you. Well, like were you ever? And even though you may not have been afraid to interject, you know, and whatnot. I mean, I, there is pressure for us to be twice as good you know, sometimes, right? Like, so with that being said, were you were you ever in a situation where maybe you were like afraid to take risks or anything like that? I mean, or it's just one of those, again, we, we talk to people all the time, right. like it, there's usually like a culminating event, you know, or something like that that happens that makes you not be afraid to take risks. Did you have any of those? Maybe at some kind of strange meta levels in Asian culture and because of my parents' state and also uh, uh, my wife, Cecilia, her parents, we support the entire family ecosystem. So this is a very common Asian thing. Mm-hmm. So it's not just it's just not not just our family unit that we're supporting. Like our parents don't have retirements, right? They <laughs> we are their financial means. And so in my early career, that was absolutely a gate to risk taking because you know I needed to build up a capital base and an income stream to know that our parents are going to be taken care of. Right? If we didn't have that constraint, I think I would have. I don't know that I would have spent seven years at Microsoft, right? I probably would have got off like a lot of these entrepreneurs and, and started a startup right away and said, hey, let me let me go to bat, right? Right out the gates. But I was, you know, I wasn't able to do that. And my wife is a corporate litigator. Right. So those career paths at a high level, I think were less risky in the beginning stages uh, because of that. On the job, I, I you know, I don't think so. I think on the job, I've always just operated with a very simple mindset of think like the CEO of the business, no matter how big the business is. And do what's best for the business. 
and you'll be okay. <laughs> because maybe your boss doesn't like what you're doing, but at some point, someone's going to see what you're doing. And if you have the right filter and you're solving for the business, people will appreciate what you're doing. So whether that's a risky thing or a not risky thing, if it's in the interest of the business, the business at the highest level, most businesses are in fact meritocracies and they will reward the folks that are helping the business succeed. No, I, I like that. Now, um, Keith and I speak regularly about some of the like the unspoken, you know, challenges that we have faced in corporate America with respect to microaggressions in some cases, even macroaggressions and highly toxic, you know, uh, relationships or even work environments. Yeah. There's a perception that you know AAPI folk have an easier path to the top. Whatever reason, for whatever reason, there's some type of perception out there. Your career is basically out of, like Keith was saying, central casting for like a tech executive. But I'm sure it wasn't all rainbows and, you know, happy uh, trails, you know, there. Can you speak to us about some of the challenges that you've had in your career that fall within these categories, perhaps? We'll ask maybe a flip side question to that afterwards. Yeah, I'm not sure this will directly answer the question, but let me first describe like how I ended up as a CEO. I was a I was a weird kid. So uh, way back in the you know the early '80s, I guess it was when I got my first Commodore 64, which was uh, yeah probably before your guys' time. But this yeah super dig We're awesome, right but dicky. We're right there, <laughs> Okay, excellent. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I know Keith is. I know Keith is. Um, <laughs> but no, I was. I love that thing. Right. The computer was just this beautiful, elegant, amazing, logical construct. And at the same time, I also knew what I enjoyed from a just the world perspective, which was systemic thinking. So, like, you know, the books I would read would be you know, the books with like big strategic battles or like researching what happened with wars, just because my I could tell my mind was wired for strategy. So I didn't even know what a CEO was, of course, because I grew up right you know, in the environment that I did. But I, I, you know, I thought of myself as like, I kind of want to be the general of computers someday. And it wasn't until I went, like, got further along in my career, I was like, oh, there's a role called the CEO. Uh, and I actually knew that before I went to college, I got exposed to that idea. So in terms of just my career arc and the kind of the obstacles, I viewed every single role as simply a learning path to build up the skills necessary to become a CEO someday. And so I talked to people to say, hey, what does a CEO need to understand? But then I also came up with my own personal framework of, hey, what are the different elements? And every single job that I have, I viewed as simply a data point and a learning point on that journey. And it actually worked out, right? At some point, I was given an opportunity from a recruiter to right go run a business, you know, my first CEO role. I was lucky enough to get that you know, fairly early. But one, I felt comfortable because I had all this, I had built up all the skills. So there was no component of, oh, crap, I feel really uncomfortable because I don't know product or I don't know marketing or I don't know this because I had actually done them all in the course of my career. And then weaving all the way back to your point or your question, Ricky, yeah, there were some crappy experiences within that arc, but in a bizarre way, they were positive because of their crappiness, <laughs> for lack of a better term. So, yeah, I will describe that Keith knows as well, because we you know, we were in the middle of a wicked turnaround at Kodak Gallery, for instance. So it was a turnaround of a business within a turnaround. That's hard. I mean, that's a, that's one of the hardest business environments you can be in. But for me, you know, that was, yes, it was difficult, but it was also incredibly positive because I walked out of that after four years, even though we had to you know, sell the business and, and effectively get rid of all the employees because the, you know, the company that bought us didn't take the employees. It was still an amazing learning experience for me because now I understood what it was like to try to operate a business under that kind of pressure. 
And so whether it was a, you know, a difficult manager or whatever it was, everything for me was, a, maybe I'm just a supreme optimist, but everything was a learning point. As long as it was a learning point, I took value out of it. That's great. I mean, the opportunities that we get sometimes as underrepresented employees don't always look like they're not always the best, right? We have to mm-hmm. go in there and kind of pull it apart, put it back together, turn shit into sugar sometimes, Victor. You know what I'm saying? And like what you about there is one of those scenarios and situations. So I definitely see how on the surface that could really look like a huge challenge. But to the flip side of that, it's extremely triumphant when you're able yeah. to accomplish, you know, some right. and especially not even having all of the skill sets or all of the boxes checked before you did it. You that was on the job learning. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's right? right. That's exactly right. I just wanted to click down a step further into that because, you know, we talk about, you know, Ricky and I on the podcast talk a lot about women and people of color kind of their first or even their first few kind of big executive opportunities that are kind of in these glass cliff roles where we're asked to turn around a business or work in a business that's not resourced very well or working for a business that isn't necessarily strategic. And I know when you and I joined joined Kodak or joined <laughs> and started working for Kodak Gallery, you know, it was just like, hey, we're getting to invest a lot of money into this business and we're getting to grow it and do all these things. And then the, then the freaking recession hit and, you yep. know, kind of like the carpet got pulled out from under us. And I know that your ride at Evite had kind of this whole roller coaster effect yeah. to it. So... Could you just talk a little bit more about what it was like kind of leading these organizations during these times? And what did that teach you as a, as, as a leader? What were some of those skills? As you mentioned earlier, you learned a lot. So just curious about what you learned. Absolutely. The quick one on Evite, Evite. So I was there for, yeah, just a little over seven years. And over that arc, Evite was actually probably three different turnarounds in sequence. So when I joined, uh, Evite had actually started what I call the MySpace slide. It had actually been neglected from a customer experience perspective. Uh, and Evite, if anyone doesn't know on this call, it's an online invitation platform. It's still the dominant one uh, in the country. Largest by far, reaches 100 plus million users. Yeah, we'll get an Evite in the course of a year. But it had started to lose scale when I joined it in uh, 2014. So you know, turnaround number one was how do you, you know, stabilizing a business that was in kind of a social fall when those flywheels start to go negative, that could be really bad, <laughs> as we saw in Kodak Gallery, right? Those those systems are hard to turn around. So yeah, there was turnaround number one. There was the turnaround number two, which is yeah, we got that thing to stable after a couple of years by just hardcore customer focus, and then started to grow it, right? Which was a you know a completely separate challenge in terms of right growing revenue streams, growing the user base, and then. Yeah, of course, the third existential challenge was COVID, which yeah, you know, for a business like Evite, which is all about getting together in person to throw parties. Like there's 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 a good side of COVID and there's the bad side of COVID, and we were on the bad side of the bad side of COVID. Uh, but yeah, we still yeah you know, we were able to bring the team through it. Evite now is it's actually probably it's healthiest that it's ever been from a revenue and profit perspective, uh, and it's yeah it's in great shape. So. Now, through, you know, through all of those experiences, including the Kodak, Kodak experience, I think one of my biggest learnings was just I'm amazed at how much people can do under incredibly difficult constraints, right? Financial constraints, macroeconomic constraints, when you give them the right rallying cry and purpose, right? You spend the time to get everyone on board and you treat them with transparency and empathy and respect. Right. I, I am not one of these. I think there was maybe a brief moment in my career at Microsoft where I, guess I, you know, I saw the screaming executives at Microsoft, and they were effective at scaling, right? The, you know, the biggest market cap company at that period of time. 
I guess I was at risk at some point. Is like maybe I would have become one of those, and luckily I I left there and, and experienced a bunch of environments. That's also not my personality, but I was exposed to a bunch of environments that took me the other way in terms of employee focus. And if you guys are familiar with like the Collins book, you know level you know level five leadership, servant based leadership, and so the power of that, the power of that in in the worst environments just continues to amaze me. Right, Pe- people can do amazing things if you let them and you treat them well. Yeah, and again, we're talking about the future of work changing every day from what we know and companies still making record profits, right? We're talking about people still being able to do their jobs, whether that be remotely or in person or some form of hybrid, like all of those things. And I think that, again, what we appreciate about your leadership style is you didn't have to yell. You didn't have to do all of those types of things, right? To be able to hold people accountable, but more importantly, to treat people with dignity and respect, you know, to be able to get them. So that's extremely commendable. Oh, thank you. So KP, when we were talking about having you on the show, one thing he mentioned that made you unique in your role as a leader. And again, we 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 refer to like someone like you as like these purple unicorns, right? Because there's probably more leaders who do it the wrong way and get rewarded (laughs) than leaders that do it the right way and don't necessarily get a notice. But he said that what made you like a unique leader is that you really are passionate about including philanthropy and community outreach into your business model. As you started kind of speaking about being a servant leader just a second ago, I think you call it the fourth stakeholder there, right? Can you talk about why this is important to you and how you've gone about doing this in your in in your day to day practice, like this is in Victor's DNA, <laughs> you know, right here. Yeah. This is part of your value proposition, you know, as a leader, so to speak. So, can you speak a little bit about the fourth stakeholder? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. First, let me describe what it is, then maybe I'll, we can talk about where it comes from, and hopefully, where it's going to go. So, the fourth stakeholder, the term simply refers to. There's this idea in capitalism called a stakeholder approach to thinking about your business. So you think about your shareholders, which are a stakeholder, your customers, uh, which are a stakeholder, your, your employees. And so there's usually these three are the primary focus of any executive. Like, how do I build a profitable business where my employees are happy and we're delivering good value to customers? That was, you know, when I went to Intuit, that was their their core framework. And it's 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 very common in the business world. There is a a wave coming through the society in a positive way, which is, hey, there, there are other stakeholders that are important. In particular, society, right? Businesses have a responsibility to society as a stakeholder. And now whether that's environment or diversity, or you could argue that's employee, you know, environment, you know, the downstream impacts of your business, right? These are things that businesses are increasingly thinking about, but it's still very early stage from my perspective. And so the fourth stakeholder idea is simply, yes, let's, let's, Continue that trade. Let's embrace society as a fourth stakeholder. But to do that as an operator, and you know, one of the luxuries I have is having run businesses. I think of things with an operating lens. It's like you need you just you need a framework. You need a playbook. You need a set of tools to approach a stakeholder. It can't just be a big flag wave of hey, let's go do do good in the world. Let's be better businesses. It's like it's it's too generic. So I saw this need for like let's create a playbook for businesses to be more responsible corporate citizens in the world. And so that's yeah, what I'll call the back half of my career. That's always been a component. I'm going to make it a you know, an even more explicit component as I move forward. How did you, you know, just thinking about that, I mean, I know at Evite, you started doing things like 
allowing people to donate to charities as they put out a party invitation. Yeah, that's yeah. just a simple example. But, you know, what kind of motivated you to want to include the stakeholder is kind of part of the operating business models that year? Yeah, it came from a, there's the core, the core thought comes from, a, I guess, a principle that I have always operated under. And this, I actually don't know where it comes from. Maybe just good upbringing, <laughs> uh, good upbringing from my parents and being exposed uh, to, to church and the concept of, you know, higher good. But I fundamentally believe that if you have been blessed in the society um, to have any sense of control over a scale lever, you need to be thinking about, like, how can I use that lever for the benefit of society? Because it really bugs me when I see people that attribute all of this, the success that they've had to themselves. It is the ultimate in hubris and narrow thinking. Because I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's Gates. And anybody, like your success is built upon the foundation of a societal infrastructure and all of the people. It's not just you. Like you happen to have succeeded, yes. And your contribution was important, yes. But you did that because of society, right? It's not like you know, you're an alien that came out of a vacuum and suddenly created something, right? So or, society- or, 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 or did you just pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps? Yeah, yeah. That's a ridiculous, <laughs> it's a ridiculous thought, right? <laughs> But it's, you know, it's, it's deep human psychology. So people, like they attribute that all to themselves. And, and that's just, of course, completely wrong in my mind, right? Like the, there are tens of thousands, of, you know, millions of people may be as smart as Gates or Musk, and they're all trying businesses. And yeah, you know, at some point you're going to have the outlier successes, right? But it doesn't mean it was all just you, right? The, the, the system around you was had a role to play. And so you you, know, you need to pay back in my mind, right? It's, it's, if, if you're going to achieve success, then you know, help the system that helped you. And give back. So that's that's where that comes from. Uh, but also, I think comes from just a simple philosophy that if I just look across, you know, you know, this might be a little start get a little a little Californian, a little too uh, a little hippie. But it's like like what's the purpose of life in general, right? It's it's happiness, right? It's it's to make people happy, right? Whether that's yourself, your family, your community, and uh, you know, as I look around the world, like what are the levers for increasing happiness and well being in the world? Like the business lever is probably one of the biggest, like 70% of the GDP of the world flows through businesses. And businesses at a high level, right, do not have this idea of, oh, let's be better citizens. Like, let's make sure that everything we're doing is helping the broader purpose. If we could, if we could change that mindset, it'll be one of the biggest levers we could move at the societal level in terms of improving people's lives, right? Just having businesses operate not as, I call business mercenaries is a term I love to use, I, I, what's a business mercenary? It's a, it's a company that all it cares about is the bottom line versus a business citizen, which really does think about all the stakeholders, including society in balance. So yeah, I, I guess it's that's where it comes from, I'd say, is a, a desire to spread happiness around the world <laughs> using one of the biggest levers. At a high level, that was one of our impetus to starting secrets, right? It's just like, if you include the voices yeah. of all the people and don't forget about all the people, it will make everything better. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, I, I love what you guys are doing for that reason. Right. <laughs> so it's great. And you mentioned the mercenaries. So we're going to talk yes. about one right now. That's right. <laughs> and you mentioned his name. So I got to go there <laughs> because you are, you are a big tech guy. And so we couldn't let the moment pass by just getting your opinion on Elon Musk, because everything that you said uh, in terms of your philosophy yeah. is the exact opposite of this mofo. <laughs> so, <laughs> you are the antichrist if we're talking about Elon Musk. So, so again, I keep, I mean, and look, we talk about this stuff offline, you know, all the time here, right? But again, it's interesting as Keith and I were like, we we really want to know what does Victor think? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, right. So this will 
maybe be our last question unless I, you know, get intrigued to ask some follow-ups. <laughs> <laughs> so I will start hopefully by not doing the making the, the same mistake that I, I I think I see him making, which is so I don't know Elon and I actually don't know anyone who has worked with him closely. So all of what I all of my commentary comes from a very narrow lens, right? Which is the lens that I see in terms of outward, you know, media amplification and just behaviors, right? So that's a huge caveat. Like it's very possible that under the hood, a lot of this stuff is not the case, and and we're just seeing a little bit of a sliver. And I always, that's actually an important point, which I think you always have to start from a position of like you don't necessarily know the truth until you go do the diligence to really find out. Which is the irony. The irony is one of the flaws that I see <laughs> in what he's doing at Twitter. Is he seems to not be, or he seems to not be doing that. Maybe he is doing it, but he seems to not be doing that. But uh, no, let me let me start with a positive because there are some incredible positives, uh, which are you know to scale two companies like SpaceX and Tesla effectively from the beginning, and to have them they're they're both going to add some amazing benefits to society at the highest level, right? So on one hand, I put him in this bucket of wow, if you think of businesses that are going to change the arc of society in a positive way, these are going to be two of the best. So I don't I don't think you can ever hold that against him and he, like he has to get credit for those things the flaws that i see or the issues that i see are there are a couple but I'll, you know, maybe i'll just pick out three because there's such a long list <laughs> that i could go into we'll start with this idea that every business deserves to exist which is an interesting one so i don't believe that every business deserves to exist the mercenary mindset of capitalism says, no, if I can build a profitable business, then it deserves to exist. Because well, look, it's customers are paying me something, right? It's generating profit. I don't subscribe to that belief with a, with a fourth stakeholder focus. Right? It is very possible that these, I'll take Twitter, I'll take Facebook, I'll take some of these social systems, right? That the broad, open, free speech broadcast between individuals in a in a many-to-many -many network is a really horrible thing. And that it will always just have horrendous second-order effects in terms of disinformation spread, right? The inability to actually grapple with the truth, the amplification of right more extreme voices. And you can come up with all of the rules in the world, and it may never solve the problem, right? I, I still think the verdict is out in terms of whether these businesses should exist. Like, and what's another category? I don't think cigarette businesses should exist. They're there. They're making a ton of money. They're killing a whole bunch of people. <laughs> they're killing a whole bunch of people. Like they shouldn't abstractly, right? They shouldn't exist. Yep. yep. And they're going to survive, unfortunately. But I think the flaw number one was he came in in some ways with a with a positive premise of hey, like with uh, these, yeah, Twitter should be an open exchange of free speech at, at that principle level, right? It should be a a system that promotes truth. I love that principle. I'm just not convinced it can be achieved. And I think from what I see, his mindset is, well, I know how to go do that. And I think it'll be interesting to see whether that comes true. But the ultimate measure, in my mind, is going to be, are people that are using Twitter aggressively actually less conspiratorial? Right? Are they less extreme? Do they have a better foundation of true fact? And there is true fact and true truth in the world, right? Until they start measuring that and understanding, right, what is the impact of these systems? Like, I don't think you could just jump in and say, like, open it up, free speech is good. That's that that may be the worst possible thing you can do, right? It may just be make the system worse. So, yeah, uh, it's that kind of cowboy or parent cowboy attitude of like, I can jump in, I can just solve this, and I know exactly how to be uh, how to solve it in what is it a very complex system. Um, and maybe missing the the big meta question of should this should this biz, business even be around? It's crazy. Um, as you, we just look over the last few years at what type of behavior has been rewarded. 
if we go back to the last president, you know, that we had, if we go back into how politics has been, have been run, if we go into a lot of the more boisterous leaders in, in some of the startups and what we look at as the darling or we set as the standard for behavior, this is just a microcosm of that, yeah. you know, yep. so, right. So leaders like you, Victor, end up kind of being the minority, like literally the minority. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, because it's like it's more people out there being boisterous and doing than trying to really change the paradigm, you know, with yeah. selfish intentions. Right. Like with that bootstrap, you know, mentality. So I appreciate that. So but this is the part of the show where we kind of like start to take it out of like Ricky, Keith and Victor's passion and emotion here. And we start looking at the receipts, right? And what the receipts is, it kind of shows people that we're not crazy. There's a reason why we're having these discussions today. So today, uh, Secrets Village, we're going to provide some receipts on the AAPI representation in corporate America. So Keith, hit us with receipt number one, buddy. My pleasure. So the Ascend Foundation report analyzed EEOC data on Silicon Valley's management pipeline and found that Asian Americans are the most likely to be hired in the high tech jobs at the end of the day. And we've talked about this. Yep. However, they are the least likely group to be promoted in management and executive levels. And in Asia Society's Corporate America survey, 27 percent of participating companies had no AAPI presence in the C-suite. And a, and a report based on data from Google, Intel, Hewlett-Packard, LinkedIn, and Yahoo showed that Asians made up only 14% of their executive ranks. And when further incorporating gender and race, the hurdles became even steeper. A sense analysis of Google's published EEOI, uh, EEO1 report revealed that Asian women in leadership at Google has not changed since 2005. Wow. And, and these issues are not exclusive to Silicon Valley. In the law profession, as an example, and Victor, your, your wife works and is a lawyer. Uh, Asian Americans have the highest attrition rates and the lowest ratio of partners to associates among all racial groups. And in the business arena, Asian Americans only account for 1.4% of Fortune 500 CEOs and 1.9% of corporate officers. Yeah, no, absolutely, and that that's a it's a fascinating and, and this Ascend organization. I've been uh, involved with them more over the last year. It's it's a great one, and yeah, we we spent a lot of time talking about this apparent contradiction, right? Yeah. Between you know, if you look at the if you look at you know the the ranks going into some of the top institutions, the top colleges, or graduating from top top colleges, or even entering these businesses, people would look at it and be like, "There's no problem. Like you guys are overrepresented." But then as a result of that, exactly, right? It actually uh, it dampens as you get higher and higher in the chain. So it's absolutely true. And that receipt is crazy. I mean, uh, before I hit you with receipt number two, you think about we want to try to get the AAPI uh, representation in the schools. We we need the, the, the talent, you know, in the organizations in terms of, tech, uh, in terms of the technology. We're going to use you up. We're going to prime you up and use you up as much as we can, but we ain't going to promote you. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, like at the end of the day, like we're gonna get everything we can for. We're gonna make it comfortable for you. But when it comes to getting, and we're gonna make you feel bad when you say you want to get promoted or you try to do that. Like it's the you you talk about the system, yeah. you know, here in the system is broken. You know, there definitely. So look, receipt number two. Um, a recent uh, report from McKinsey pointed out um, inequalities among the uh, 8.8 million Asian Americans in the workforce. 
even though they uh, start off um, overrepresented by more than two times compared to their share of the population at the entry level, Asian American representation drops off by more than half overall at the board of director you know, level. And among the Fortune 500 companies, 22 are led by Asian Americans. Asian American women meet uniquely uh, strong resistance to advancement by uh, being penalized, okay? Penalized for being both people of color and women. So they're getting a double whammy, you know, there. And according to the research, uh, the share of promotions for Asian women is one for every two Asian men at the senior management level, dropping to one for every six Asian men at the C-suite executive level. So again, that further illustrates what we were just talking about, just trying to make the complex yeah. simple. Like, we'll get you in school. We'll get you in the company. Like, we need you because that does count, you know, towards the uh, ethnic representation. But again, when it comes to getting promoted, it ain't happening. Yeah, we have this fascinating problem. If you if you think about an organization like a, like a pyramid, right? And at the base of the pyramid, you have all these employees flowing in, which... At this stage, maybe you know, reasonably diverse, right? This because this that's where it's gonna that's where diversity is gonna show up first, right? Is it coming out of the schools and in the feeders into the systems? The problem is the the cycle time of those people as they move up the pyramid, like the rotation at those levels, is too slow, right? So you have this huge mass of people that are coming in, but only a tiny, tiny number of roles. Like you know, board roles is a great example. Like people sit on those roles here in the U.S. I want to say like ten or eleven years on average, uh, and some of those board positions are there for you know twenty years. You can contrast that with uh, Germany. I think Germany is at like roughly half that rotation. So imagine the U.S. were to do the same thing and say, you know, no, no, you, you don't get to sit on a board forever. It's a four-year stint, right? And we're going to bring that average down. What would you do? You would sit, you would immediately double the number of board positions available, right? And, and within four years, right? So as opposed to, oh, we made the small fractional improvement, right? It would allow some of that flow to come in. Uh, but that, you know, that gating function is happening everywhere in the system, which which is a problem. And in a crazy way, now that I think about it, makes it look like there's even higher discrimination in things like Asians because they're a larger part of the bottom of the pyramid, right? So when you only have a finite number, it's like they're like they're uh, even if they had half the promotion rate, right, right. it might still be the same number of people coming through because the base is twice as big, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It does. It does. It does. And I thought we see kind of piles onto that <laughs> a little yeah. bit too because that same McKinsey report that points out, even though, and we've just talked about this, even though there's higher educational attainment and higher social economic mobility, Asian Americans are often seen as the doers and not leaders um, at mm-hmm. the end of the day, which exasperates that problem, right? And advancement sputters as Asian Americans move up the corporate ladder where high levels of representation at the entry level do not translate to high levels in senior management roles. And in fact, the share of Asian Americans uh, decreases with greater seniority. So does their share of promotions. And for example, McKinsey's Women in the Workplace study surveyed more than 400 large organizations across the United States in 2021 and found that Asian Americans count for 9% of senior vice presidents, but just 5% of promotions from senior vice president um, to the C-suite. And Asian American women make up less than 1% of these promotions. So that's exactly yeah. what you're just talking yep. about. Yeah. Yourself, just in terms of that pyramid getting, low, you know, at the bottom is big. And, you know, as, as Ricky said, I've checked all the boxes that I got, yep. you know, my education, I got all these things, but, you know, the pipeline isn't moving. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And we're getting acknowledged, right? We're getting one of the top 100 companies to work for, for diversity. We're getting all of these performative 
trinkets, you know, mm-hmm. and, and adoration, you know, at the organization. But if you double click, there's obviously, you know, an issue, you know, there in terms of the representation. There is. And, th- and it will just take time, sadly, because it's basically it is going to be a function of the effect that, you know, there's some macro measure of the pyramid of the mean transition turnover period for for roles. The longer that time window is, the slower the system is going to rebalance, yep. right? The faster that turnover, right? The faster we'll actually, you know, the faster we'll be. But that's, that's hard. We're talking about decades, right? Uh, and, and everyone's impatient because it's like, hey, this should have this should have changed yesterday. That's right. <laughs> you're, you're smacking up against a system that doesn't change that fast. Yeah. And, and look, and, and the last uh, receipt uh, that we'll uh, uh, provide today, and this is, again, validation that our AAPI, you know, colleagues uh, are not crazy, <laughs> you know, here, right? <laughs> like what you sense and what you feel is real is there is a little glimmer of hope here, right? According to uh, Statistica, um, in 2021, there were a total of 449 new board members appointed in Fortune 500 companies. Asian and Asian American uh, uh, Asian Americans accounted for nine percent of new directors in 2021. So that is, mm-hmm. you know, a, a positive. That that's yeah. intentionality. You know, yes, uh, that's right. uh, that was the same percentage compared to the previous year. But still, it was the highest number of newly appointed Asian and Asian American board members in the last 12 years, where it was 3.9% in 2009. So again, there is a glimmer of hope, but I think the the the, the bigger piece for there uh, for that to me is the intentionality. Yeah, you know? yeah, you're definitely seeing intentionality in terms of trying to accelerate that that process, uh, which is which is a positive thing, right? I. I fundamentally believe. I think we all do, of course. Here, <laughs> more diversity is a good thing, right? At these, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of decision, better decision making, more empathy. It's you know, mm-hmm. the data. The data is strong for diversity support. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that again, if we're talking about uh, sweat equity and doing the real work, you know, here that's exactly where we are. But what I wanted to try to do is is to you know leave our listeners today with you know, some secrets, you know, whether that be individually and also for corporate America on how they can uh, influence change. So today, uh, Secrets Family, we have a double dose of secrets for you. Victor uh, will provide three secrets on how young AAPI leaders can increase their visibility and ultimately gain sponsorship. And then we'll close out with, uh, close out the episode with three additional secrets from Victor on how companies can build and expand their efforts to develop and recruit underrepresented employees for executive leadership roles. So, Victor, if you wouldn't mind, um, would you recommend, like, what would you recommend for increasing your visibility and gaining sponsorship in your current role for our, um, you know, AAPI listeners, you know, out there who want to, you know, try to move up in in their careers? Yes, it's funny. So, uh, I actually put out last, about six months, actually, yeah, six to nine months ago, because I get asked that question a lot. It's probably one of the most common questions I get when I'm out you know, kind of speaking with folks from young executives. I actually took the time to codify the top 10, what I call my CEO secrets. Like if I could, and my mental model was this, if I could go back to myself 30 years ago and give myself all of the best advice, what advice would I give myself? And I actually put that all online for free because I, I think it will help. I wish somebody would have done that to me. <laughs> I did okay at the end of the day, but it, you know, maybe it would have gone even faster if someone had given me some of these things. So yeah, I can share those links with you guys at the end uh, of the session. But it's yeah, I'll, te- I'll tease out just three from that list because they are uh, 
yeah, every every single one is an important what I call golden nugget. So, you know, first one I would say is, and we talked about it a little bit in this interview, always operate with what I call the CEO hat. And if that's too much of a stretch, then operate with the hat of your manager or your manager's manager, right? Yeah, you know, people tend to go into a job and they think of their bounding box as their as just the job. But you gotta stop you gotta step outside of that. You gotta say, like, well, what would my manager think about this? What would my CEO think about this? And you might not know because you don't have the business context. And what does that lead you to? Then you go get the business context. And how is that going to help you? You're you're going to be way more efficient and effective at your job because you just know, again, you're solving for the business with the broader perspective, as opposed to just you know chugging away, doing your job. Somebody asks you for something, you're like, great, I did it. I did it fast when the answer should might have been, actually, no, this is a bad idea. <laughs> you're asking me to do this, but you know, this product over here is doing this. And wow, you know, maybe we could join these things and make it more efficient, do it in half the work, right? So you, you can't have those, you can't come up with those solutions unless you have the broader perspective. So that's you know, number one. Number two, to get that broader perspective basically means you can't be spending 100% of your time just doing your job. And so I try to allocate at a minimum, you know, at 10% and sometimes even more, a constant perpetual skill set building at the next level. And I've done that my whole, my whole career, right? Why that's helpful is like at some point, right, when you bring that broader perspective and so it gives you the opportunity, you're in one of two buckets. Like either you're in the bucket of, oh, crap, I, I have expanded responsibility. I have no idea what I'm doing if you haven't built those skills. Versus if you have built those skills, it's like, okay, great. Yeah, I, can, I, I think I know how to do that job because I've actually been perpetually building up skill sets, right? That are going to help me at the next level. All right. So that's that's another big one. And then in particular, yeah, because we're talking about that kind of that Asian cultural dynamic, you have to communicate what you have done. You cannot rely on the system to showcase your good work to people. Um, and this was you know, great advice I got from one of my bosses at Microsoft. You know, in a one-on-one was one of the most important one-on-ones I ever got. Where she's like, "Hey, Victor, you know, you're doing great, great stuff. It's awesome. And guess what? If I got hit by a bus tomorrow, nobody would know who you are here. <laughs> Damn, you'd be starting from zero. You'd be starting <laughs> from zero. She's like, I think you're God's gift you know, to to whatever, but nobody else knows. She's like, you have to go let other people. You got to build those bridges, build those communication streams, and you can do that. And my first inclination when I heard that was. Ew, that sounds ew, gross. Like I'm not gonna go out. And, ew, yeah, I'm great. <laughs> it's like a, but the epiphany came from this idea that you can communicate your wins in a way that helps the business mm-hmm. in a very legitimate, very value added way, right? So let's say you just you do a project, right? And let's say you screw up a project. I'll make a weird. Say you screw up a project and you get some learnings. Most people would just hoard that, be like, oh, I don't want people to know, right? Instead, you could go out and say, like, hey, I just ran this thing. I did ABC. We learned X. Let's not make that mistake again. Let me go distribute that to all of the other marketing. Let's say you're working in marketing. All the other marketing teams, right, might get value from this. So you can, you can build this whole communication engine around your work that gets the good and the bad, but more importantly, the organizational learnings out. That really helps build your brand out there, right? As a thought, as a leader, right? Because you're you're clearly showing up outside the bounds of the scope of your role, right? You're driving broader organizational change. So those are just three uh, quick ones um, out of 10. Which, no, those, those are all solid. <laughs> those those all ones solid. Three quick. That was three dynamite. That's fire. You know, <laughs> no, right? He's trying to burn <laughs> the building down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, now, now we have to go get the other seven. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and broadening the conversation out, what what uh, three kind of uh, secrets would you provide to um, companies, you know, as they're trying to build and expand their efforts around diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and recruiting and and promoting underrepresented yeah. employees. Yeah, yeah no, that, that's that's a great one. I've got 
uh, there was a point at even pre-COVID where we had, you know, greater than 50% female uh, in terms of gender diversity. Like the executive team was incredibly well balanced. Um, we even had like a lot of female tech leads, which was very rare. And so, yeah, I'll just I'll just give you three tactics that I think worked worked well for us, and that I think can work at smaller scale. Um, if you're if you're bigger, like a Microsoft, you're kind of screwed because <laughs> you're you're dealing with just such a high volume, and you're kind of relying on like the feeder systems like schools. But but smaller businesses absolutely can make huge progress. So uh, number one, I would say is um, make sure that your hiring process focuses more on what I would call capabilities as opposed to like a long resume of like, yeah, what I call the, you know, actually you called me the purple, purple something, purple squirrel. I, I use this term purple squirrel for the candidate where you have like 20 things like, oh, I want someone who went to an Ivy League school, who's got these degrees and like worked at this kind of company. And the more you do that, the more you actually, right, wean down into a very specific profile that may not be very diverse. So instead you should focus on like, what is the business need to go achieve from a capability perspective? And do I believe this person has that? Because you will be amazed at what people that don't fit your you know, 10 bullet list profile can actually do. Because there's actually a huge disconnect right between those bullets and delivery on the job. Right, So that, that's one, kind of focusing on capabilities. Uh, another one, what I, I perpetually do as a CEO is I'm always looking for great, diverse talent. Um, out in the world. So, you know, when I'm running, act- when I'm actively running a business, I'll be building the bench. Right? I call it the fallback bench in case anyone does get hit by a truck, right? Who's going to replace my, you know, COO or my CFO? And do I have candidates that I've cultivated a relationship with? And that network I ensure is diverse. So when something, when someone does leave or something does happen, you can instantly just go tap somebody and say like, Hey, like we've built this relationship. You have the context, right? So, uh, that's an easy way to maintain diversity. Uh, and then the third one, was when uh, when we were doing a lot of hiring, kind of pre-COVID, basically told the hiring teams, right, we're going to hire the best talent at the end of the day that we think best ha- you know best delivers the capabilities we need, but the interview pool that we bring in needs to be diverse, right? So we never had a quota for no 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 you know you're going to hire a you know, diverse candidate for this role, but we ensured the candidate pool was diverse, which took a little bit more work. Right, uh, the combination of those three things again at, at at smaller scale definitely led to some great changes in diversity. I think most of those, I think those three things would work for most most small to, to mid sized businesses anyway. Yeah, and and the, and the joy in these secrets that you're providing is whether they be individual or or you know um, or the enterprise or for the businesses here. Shit isn't that hard, Victor. It it really it really isn't. I mean, it does take a commitment, mm-hmm. you know, from individually and from an organization. That you're going to kind of be that change, that catalyst, you know, for yeah. it. I appreciate that. So, look, I just want to start out by saying, uh, Victor, me, Keith, I mean, we're just so grateful that you were able to come on today, man, to just bless the mic, right? Secrets Village, we told you season five was going to be off the chain and Victor did not disappoint. We sincerely appreciate you being with us today. But before we wrap, can you... uh Tell a little bit about the online coaching modules you've been uh, working on and how can uh, your new Secrets Village, you know, get in contact with you and stay current with how uh, to support you in your upcoming uh, projects and events. Oh, awesome. Thanks for asking, Ricky. Yeah, so these this, this uh, these 10 courses are, again, completely free. Normally, people try to charge, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars for that stuff. But again, my, my goal, uh, because it came from this, you know, underprivileged foundation is let's get this out to as many people as possible. There's a completely optional donation flow 
to a number of organizations that actually help underprivileged students. Um, but again, that completely optional. So uh, to get to them, you just go to my website. It's at victorcho.com, V-I-C-T-O-R-C-H-O.com. And there's a just a big button, uh, online course, and uh, they're all there. Now, awesome. In terms of reaching me, uh, uh, it's also on my site, but you can just email uh, me at victorcho.com. We'll come straight to... Uh, one of my many inboxes. Ooh, hey, no, this is this is great. Like I said, this is this is gold. You know, here we always talk about if if I would have known, you know, then what I know now. Like Victor is giving it to you for free. You <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, for free. Yeah. You know, He's gonna run us out of business, Ricky. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Get this. He is giving it to you for free. I don't know if you heard that, but you got that. No, that's all good. No, Victor, I really appreciate you being on the show as well. Um, you know, it's it's nice to kind of just keep the, keep the friendship going, uh, you know, after all of these years and, and yes. come on and be a part of this. So I really appreciate it. And uh, if anybody wants to find more resources, Victor just shared um, his website. Those will be in our show notes. Um, so just go on secrets.com and we'll have all that information for you so you don't have to be writing it down while you're listening at the same time. We got you. <laughs> yeah. And Victor, you are officially in the Secrets Village, man. So and our Secrets Village just continues to grow because of you, because of our listeners, because we understand that we've been we've been called upon to be able to deliver this information. And we want to keep bringing in people like you, you know, Victor, and, and who's, who's doing the work that you're doing and trying to share this with the community. Now, I know we say this every single week, you guys, but please help us, you know, out by writing a review on Apple or Spotify or joining our LinkedIn group and commenting on those posts uh, and all of your favorite social media channels. I mean, it really does help. Those comments help us not only um, um, get more notice, you know, out there, but it puts the word out for people to be able to take advantage of it. But more importantly, Victor mentioned it earlier too, it helps you become a thought partner, a thought leader, which is very, very important to being able to find your voice. And we were, again, truly honored uh, for all of the accolades that we've been able to get this year, including the Listener's Choice Award from the Black Podcasters Association. All of that happens because of your support. We did that, and we appreciate you all for that. That's right. And it is a holiday, so go check out our merch. <laughs> go get yourself some secrets gear <laughs> and do your thing. You already know that um, PR and I are locked in on helping you get your coin at the table. You know, to date, for people who've worked with us, we've helped uh, get over $6 million in total comp increases for for our clients. So feel free to reach out and, it, and it's, it's the end of the year. You know, we all start looking at our jobs and thinking about our lives and our careers. So, you know, you know, if you're in that little crappy job that you don't like, or trying to just build up your little resume and, and get new skill sets, you know, reach on out because we'll be happy to provide coaching. We'll be happy to come to your organizations and provide training also. So, or just provide a referral if you've already been through the process with us. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so again, we want to thank Victor Cho once again for being with us today, brother. We appreciate, you know, all of the knowledge and the gems that you dropped. So we really, really appreciate that. But right now, we're going to take just a moment to refill these cups so we can get back at creating some of this hot fire, you know, for our uh, for our listeners. So Secrets Village, we absolutely, sincerely appreciate you all. And thanks for tuning in today. This was an outstanding episode. I might have to go back and listen to this myself yeah, again. <laughs> so remember Secrets Village, 
When we share, you transform. Peace, everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed yet another episode of Secrets. In fact, one listener said that with Secrets, I learn new, actionable information listening to KP and PR. I enjoy the balance of data with the testimony of real experience, and we hope you agree. If you are motivated and excited after listening to Keith and Ricky, please show these brothers some love. Subscribe and write a review on our podcast. And last, but certainly not least, elevate your professional game by signing up for our executive coaching services. Check us out at www.secrets.com to get more information about our secret services. Remember, when we share, you transform. Until next time, cheers.